we're doing some reading today. Yeah. Uh, our topic for today, we've selected from the canon and kind of, you know, pulled from the communist liturgy a selection of readings. So we'll have, you know, first reading, second reading, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Your communist missalette. Yeah. Well, yeah, go through that. I don't know which one would count as the gospel. And I kind of have an idea of an order of this, but <laughs> we'll get into it. Um, but what we're talking about, I guess I should say that before <laughs> getting all into all the, you know, all the complicated logistics of it is uh, we're talking about democratic centralism. Wonderful. Exciting. An important topic, kind of an intimidating topic, I would say, being being the, the dummy thick coming in here, not knowing what it is. <laughs> it can sound kind of intense just from a, a quick glance. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely the case. I think it also can get kind of a bad rap. Yes. And not, honestly, not just from right-wing sources. Uh, this is where I think that some of our... Marxist-Leninist, and people who do agree with democratic centralism, one of the sources of that camp's ire toward, or just kind of annoyance with non-Marxist-Leninists and various leftists of different stripes, whether that's like an Orthodox Marxist from like, you know, non-Leninist sort, or whether that's like anarchists or what have you. I was going to say, I bet anarchists aren't into this. They're not. Okay. <laughs> and so I think that's kind of a point of contention is like uh, anarchists and people on the left, they, you know, they don't end up sounding the same as capitalists about this. But since, you know, they're broadly speaking against it, it's like, it's, it's a point of friction, I think. Yeah. Like, I would love almost a follow-up episode of, you know, maybe reread the anarchist take on some of these things, you know, like, what does Emma Goldman think about this? Yeah, that's a good idea. Something I thought of today, once I was finished kind of getting my thoughts together on this is like, yeah, yeah, that would be kind of a good round out to some of these is like, shift it up a little bit and focus a little bit more on, you know, because we kind of, I think, leave anarchism somewhat as a as a second, uh, as a afterthought sometimes. I think so, yeah. At least I, that's I me, because it's not my primary tendency. No, I mean, it was funny, like, after reading this, I was like, yeah, I think I'm, like, a Maoist now. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll see. Because, um, yeah, that that's what makes me want to go do the other reading, too, of, like, am I just, like, <laughs> a fickle sort of leftist, like, whatever I read last, that's what I am. <laughs> hey, that's, as long as you have somebody giving you good theory, you'll still end up in the right place. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, listeners, we will have links to all these readings in the podcast description. And also our Patreon will have that too. Yeah. All right. So before we dive into the sacred texts, I think it's a good idea to give ourselves a basic non-technical definition of democratic centralism and like a basic idea of why we mentioned it's important. Why is it important? Yes. Also, listeners, my cat is really fucking needy today. So if you hear a stray meow, sorry, I'm going to try to catch them all. But, you know, he's crafty. <laughs> oh, he's good. He's we'll so him. needy. I guess I was out of town for a few days, so I think Aww. he's forgiven me. And now he's like, OK, I can't let I them leave. I do love you. I was mad at you for a minute there, but <laughs> if I leave them alone, they'll leave me again. 
I know. No, Remy. That's an unhealthy attachment style. <laughs> All right. So, democratic centralism, what is it? Basic, bare bones thing that we'll get, we're going to get into more detail later, but it's an organizational principle of communist parties, uh, socialist parties to some extent, you know, that milieu. And if they do end up like running a government, then like a socialist state. And it means simply freedom of discussion and unity of action is the easiest way to boil it down into a slogan. So the, what we're talking about there is that all members of that party or really of whatever organization it is are allowed to freely debate while the party's trying to figure out what they're going to do. Not only allowed, but like encouraged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring up problems, argue, whatever. Exactly. Do that, please. Mm -hmm. Right. This is the time. Uh, and then once the party votes or decides what they're going to do, everybody, even the people who did not like this particular decision and were against it, you know, they end up in the minority. That's okay. They are still bound to uphold that decision. But yeah, okay. So that's kind of basically what it is. The why it's important question, I think we should talk about kind of up top because otherwise this is pretty bland theory <laughs> stuff, really. So it just turns it off like, eh. Yeah, who cares about this? So democratic centralism as an organizational principle is purported to make organizations work more effectively. Uh, it's supposed to be a good way for parties to get the best of both worlds, kind of resolving the dialectic between freedom and unity, democracy and centralism. Yeah, I would say if you're having kind of a hard time conceptualizing this, like imagine even like your workplace, like it for me, it's very frustrating when I'm like discussing a project and someone in the middle of, let's say, you know, producing the thing that I'm working on is like, well, what about this? And they're bringing up something we decided on weeks ago, you know, right. like yeah. the idea of like, Hey, we already decided that we're moving forward. Like you can bring it up the next time we have a similar project. It's like, that's a good point. But like, not right now. I'm almost done shipping these files. <laughs> yeah, the time for that was a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where were you? <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea, but for two weeks ago, for yes. sure. And that's a kind of interesting point is I do think that they wouldn't call it democratic central, but like, no. you know, and it's not even really very democratic in workplaces, let's be honest, mm -hmm. but they're definitely centralists. You know, they definitely want you to get the fuck on board and go with it. And you're not supposed to deviate from that. Now, that's not 100% what we're talking about here of like, just get on board and go with it. There, we'll, we'll find that when you dive into the theory, the democracy part is just as important as the centralism part. Yes, I would definitely emphasize that because I think it could come across as very much like fucking get on board or else. And right. This is the theory of dictatorship, right? Essentially, yeah. And it's leaving out such an important part of that equation, which is like we are here to listen and learn from the people. Like that's so cool. Yeah. And that's another important thing to note when we we're talking about this. We talk a lot about democracy. We're not talking about voting in elections for candidates. That's not that's not nope. it. <laughs> we're talking about hashing shit out yeah actually coming to you know a consensus and i think the sources will kind of bear that out as a large part of the democratic process is not tallying up who has more votes on it but actually literally arguing persuading changing people's minds 
changing the numbers to where it's not a 51% decision, that there's a clear will of the party, the organization, because you spent that time openly talking about things, openly getting to hear those ideas, the marketplace of ideas, except it's not a marketplace (laughs) in this case, you know, that does, I don't know, that's a big part of the work. Basically, the idea is, ideally, you're going to get the both best of both worlds. You're going to get that sort of getting to hear all these different ideas. But you're going to get the unity, the centralism to get you past that point. You know, you were saying with the work analogy, the way I thought of it was at some point when I'm scrolling through Uber Eats, I've got to eventually decide to order some food. <laughs> yes, and you then know? it's done. <laughs> and at some point, you have to quit debating what type of food I'm going to eat. And you got to order it. You got to, and then, and then at that point, you need to find something on the menu. There's no use of going back and saying, Hey, we're going to, you're going to go to this place. We're gonna this <laughs> place. But, uh, hey, I'm on this page now. I'm ordering this. What do you order? <laughs> All right. And, and that's kind of what we're talking about here is you, you get that unity, that centralism of saying, Okay, we've made the decision. There's Moving no forward. getting off the tracks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The other thing is that's how it's supposed to work. We can kind of talk about as we go through the different experiences the different states have had with this. And like we mentioned, this is mainly for, this is like mainly supported by Marxist-Leninists, uh, Trotskyists, Maoists, Marxist-Leninist Maoists, any sort of variant in that stripe, that area. But I think the declining level of support would be like other types of socialists, democratic socialists, uh, anarchists, I think would be probably in last place. Yeah. In terms of their support of this. <laughs> Centralism, I think, is a big, uh, like a, like a, not a power, I don't know, like negative word. It's not a trigger. I guess a trigger. I don't know. They don't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a hot button issue. Yeah, there you go. All right. So let's get into the readings. I thought we might start with Chairman Mel from his quotations. He's got, it's, you know, the the Little Red Book. Um, that's where this comes from. And there's a lot of them. And a couple of sections of the quotation book kind of deal with the question of, and the first one that comes to mind is the, is chapter 26 on discipline. So can you tell me a little more about the context of like when this quote was happening? Sure. It's the interesting thing about the uh, collection of quotations from Chairman Mao is that they are collected from all throughout the Communist Party of China's like rise to that point. Uh, they cover basically from 1927 to 1964. Uh, okay. And within this chapter, you're looking at a range from 1929 to 1957. So a broad spectrum just in this one. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of where it's coming from and... Right off the bat, I think he kind of strikes gold. He says, within the ranks of the people, democracy is correlative with centralism and freedom with discipline. They are two opposite sides of a single entity, contradictory as well as united, and we should not one-sidedly emphasize one to the denial of the other. Within the ranks of the people, we cannot do without freedom, nor can we do without discipline. We cannot do without democracy, nor can we do without centralism. This unity of democracy and centralism and freedom and discipline constitutes our democratic centralism. Under the system, the people enjoy extensive democracy and freedom, but at the same time, they have to keep within the bounds of socialist discipline. 
We must affirm anew the discipline of the party, namely, and then he kind of goes on to list, here's what you got to do. The individual is subordinate to the organization. The minority is subordinate to the majority. The lower level is subordinate to the higher level. And the entire membership is subordinate to the central committee. Whoever violates these articles has incurred my wrath. No, he says, <laughs> of discipline, it disrupts party unity. Yeah, I mean, I love the dialectics going on in that first paragraph. Like, I almost pictured, like, a little graph of, like, freedom and discipline and then also democracy and centralism. And, like, it is a constant balance and they all are required. Yeah, and... There's so much more that Mao gets into in the later readings of like, why those are so linked right now. He's just saying they are right. Mm -hmm. This great description of them as two sides, inseparable, a dialectic pair. And yeah, I mean, one way to think of it is democracy without centralism is a bunch of people talking in a room. Like, yeah, you're having a good time. You get everyone gets to hear the ideas. Nothing's going to get done. (laughs) Good job. You all come away with your own views. You're not united on anything. Who cares? Right? Mm-hmm. You just had a good discussion. You're, you might end up being feeling like you were the most correct one in the room, but no one's on your side because you didn't bother to do all that sort of like consensus making. You're just, it's fine. Centralism without democracy is just like, basically, like you mentioned earlier, being an employee in capitalism. You're, you mm-hmm. do what you're told, toe the line. That's it. You know? Yeah. Just dictatorship in the negative way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just dictatorship. Not the, not the cool dictatorship <laughs> of the proletariat. No, yeah. Not just meaning they're in charge, but like actually someone's in charge of you. <laughs> yes. And I don't know, I thought that the keys here, the little bullet points were pretty easy to follow. I mean, follow the organization, follow the majority, follow the higher-ups, follow the central committee, maintain unity. I think this was kind of where I first raised my eyebrows in my little anarchist way of like, that sounds kind of mean. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, listen, buddy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like you're subordinate, you know, like I was like, oh, okay. Not my favorite word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think the other readings support this in a way that make it make more sense. Because I, yeah. I think if you just read this paragraph, you'd be like, this sucks. Yeah. This but is like, kind of bossy. You, I, like, I wish they included more i guess this this paragraph says it's about the discipline of the party so that's more about the centralism side um but i guess i wish there was like another paragraph of points that was like and here's the democratic side of that which they they do later i guess yes for sure um but this is kind of emphasizing the unity part uh i think it gives a good description of the dialectic there between the two uh the next little quote from there talks about you know, one requirement being the minority should submit to the majority. If your view does get rejected, hey, this happens, right? You know, you wanted pineapple pizza. Everybody else wanted something else. <laughs> you just got to deal or leave the party. You have to deal. And then you're free. He's, he mentions, if necessary, you can bring it up next meeting. But <laughs> don't fuck with it in the meantime, basically. <laughs> and yes. I think that's an important part. You don't want, you know, your party members and everything gumming up the works, going out in public and saying, hey, these assholes are doing this. It's like, aren't you in that group? Like, that looks bad. Uh, (laughs) So they just mean like bring it up in the proper setting, I guess, of like the next party meeting. Yeah. And also don't actively like torpedo it and stuff in between, you know, or say, oh, I'm going to sit this one out or whatever. Like you Mm -hmm. should be. 
you should be on board because the majority of your comrades said, this is a good idea. If you don't, if you really hate it, sure, I mean, you can leave the party, but that would have to be pretty dire. Yeah, like, it requires a lot of trust of, like, hey, come on, like, you have to assume your comrades want the best, too. Mm -hmm. And also requires trust of, like, okay, I'm going to go think about it and come back later, and I, I know you're going to try to listen to me again. Yeah. So, question on this, though, mm -hmm. like, not... Not talking shit is kind of an important part of this, you know? Yeah. You can talk shit when the decisions are being made. You can you can talk quite a bit of shit. But once it's made, you can't. I guess, I don't know, on, on like first, just I think a very like American point of view here is like that makes me uncomfortable just because I'm so used to like kind of, you know, the press being seen almost as an arbiter of like, hey, I'm going to speak out about this thing that's affecting me. I guess instead of doing that, it is you go to the next meeting and bring it up. Like, hey, you just did this new policy and it affected me badly. I would like to bring that up. Yeah. I think that you've got to obviously introduce a caveat of people are literally being harmed. Totally, totally. You know, that's a different situation where, you, you know, or there's abuse or something along these lines. But if it's something or like, hey, there, there was an unforeseen circumstance that we didn't account for, this new policy is actually bad. Or if it's like, yeah, I thought that this strategy would be better. Let me go to the newspaper and complain about how this party is being run poorly. You know, mm -hmm. that would be bad. Like you would want to, you would want to come to the next meeting with that instead, um, or cut your ties altogether, or whatever. And we're not, we're also not talking about like just small criticisms or like interpersonal conversations. <laughs> like you know jim i think we should have done this like you're not gonna get turned into the next meeting and be like you fucker you told me that you disagreed with like that's not <laughs> so the criteria has to be will it help or will it harm the party's mission okay, okay and so nine times out of ten especially in the bourgeois west but i mean in most circumstances going out into public and saying I'm a member of the party and I disagree with what we're doing is probably going to, unless the party was severely misguided and somehow your, you know, clarion call in, in the wilderness <laughs> is going to drag everyone to the right. Nine times out of 10, that's going to be harmful to the party's goals. Yes. Okay. Especially if you're a, you know, a communist organization in, in the imperialist core, because <laughs> they're looking for us to do that. Yeah, they would love for us to fight each other. They send FBI agents into our organizations to do that. So don't help them by don't joining. Don't do their work for them. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's Mal on discipline. I liked the pairing there just to kind of get that as a key concept that these are linked together. Democracy and centralism, freedom and discipline. That kind of the idea of one without the other is very to varying degrees impossible or, or bad or yeah just like crippling to the movement uh next we have another selection from chairman mao's quotations this one from chapter 15 democracy in the three main fields okay uh what are the three main fields let's see uh astronomy <laughs> uh, philosophy and botany. That's it. Those are the only ones we need. There you go. <laughs> uh, what are the three main fields? Did you get that from this? Nope. 
I really wasn't paying attention to the three main fields part. I was focused. Now that I really... think about it, I don't remember this being the title. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's what it says on mine. Democracy. No, it the... is. Yeah, but I just don't remember reading anything about fields. Maybe they. It sounds like it's about like army shit. So maybe that's a reference that we're like just not theaters getting. of what? It's not all war stuff. I don't think they're all nineteen forty. They're all pre-war stuff. Okay, so maybe. I don't know. We didn't look into the title. He does start out by talking about the army a little bit. And um, the reason why, because it kind of sounds odd, why the focus on the army, you know? like Probably because that was happening. Yeah, we're not all in the army now, but if you remember, the Communist Party of China was kind of forged in the fire, first of the warlord conflict at the end of the uh, Qing Dynasty, and then in the Chinese Civil War against the Nationalists with the interlude of the Japanese invading. So they'd been fighting pretty much their entire existence. The whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was how they functioned. Yeah. It was, it was like a military outfit. Also, they were a political party. Like there wasn't really a lot of separation here. Mao really gets into the democracy half and really kind of makes this shine a little more. We have the foundation of, yeah, these are two sides of the same coin. And when it comes down to it, you need to be disciplined. But what's that democracy part about? Yeah. Tell me more. So he says all its leading bodies and all its members and cadres should give the fullest expression to their initiative in their courage and ability to raise questions, voice opinions and criticize defects. And in the comradely supervision that is maintained over the leading bodies and leading cadres. Otherwise, initiative will be an empty thing. The exercise of such initiative depends on the spread of democracy in party life. It cannot be brought into play if there's not enough democracy in party life. Only in an atmosphere of democracy can large numbers of able people be brought forward. Yeah, I really like this section and the one after it, especially the idea of, again, like these are such entwined concepts. Yeah, this definitely emphasizes the importance of being able to and encouraging raising questions and criticizing and and I think it's interesting that it's in an army context like you don't think of the army doing that you know like Mm -hmm. it's very different from kind of like the fashy you know just you're part of a unit kind of take that I think a lot of military operations kind of fall under you know, even earlier in this reading, they're talking about like, like, let's not beat the soldiers, you know, things like that. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems like they're, they're coming at this in such a different way, in terms of like the idea of creating discipline, something we think of as very corporal, and you know, very harsh, through, like openness. Yeah, of this, like calls like the atmosphere, uh, refers to it as the spread of democracy, basically, you can't expect people to speak up if there's not that atmosphere of democracy if there's not this expectation that that'll be fine right like if they think they're going to get punished for speaking up they're not going to and then what's like what are you there to do like if if you don't feel free or you don't have the courage as he puts it to criticize raise questions potentially stir up shit then you're just there to go along with whatever they're saying like whatever leadership says you're just like Yep. Good. Cool. <laughs> like, uh, okay. Another example, like nine times out of 10, when you go to a company meeting or something, you're just there to be like, okay, okay. this could have been an email. <laughs> yeah. 
Cool new policy. Thanks. You don't want your Communist Party to run the same way. The next paragraph here kind of expands on that of anyone should be allowed to speak out, whoever he may be, so long as he is not a hostile element and does not make malicious attacks. And it does not matter if he says something wrong. Leaders at all levels have the duty to listen to others. Two principles must be observed. One, say all you know and say it without reserve. Two, don't blame the speaker, but take his words as a warning. Unless the principle of don't blame the speaker is observed genuinely and not falsely, the result will not be say all you know and say it without reserve. I fucking love that. Like, yeah, yeah you can't have someone, you can't just say like, anyone want to speak up when you know, like you're going to get fucking beat up if you do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's uh, kind of another way to put that same thing. You know, you have to observe that principle. Don't blame the speaker. Don't get pissed off when people speak out don't retaliate against them right ever if you're expecting them to speak out i mean if you want them to shut the hell up then sure i mean you know (laughs) be mean to them if they say something that you don't like but if you want that honest feedback you have to provide the right setting for that you have to provide a party that people believe will actually honestly take criticism yeah like it reminds me a lot of kind of the rules of critique in in like an art context Mm. Mm mm-hmm it is always like there has to be an understanding of like respect and of, you know, this is not a personal thing ever. And I am genuinely trying to help. So like, you have to have a lot of trust in the person doing the critique and the person receiving the critique also has to be trusting too. you know, like it it just made me think of that of like, you know, don't be malicious and don't, you know, make personal attacks in this, but also don't take it the wrong way too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For me, that was like, hey, you know, we don't need the fascists. We don't need the racists. Like the homophobes, the transphobes, any of the phobes can see themselves out of the meeting. They may be lost at best or need to be kicked out, but like, fuck them. Exactly. None of that. I also like the idea of speak up and don't hold back. Like if that safe atmosphere is there, it's also incumbent on the people in the party to not be like me and be shy and be like, I don't want to speak up. You know, what if I'm wrong? You know, like Uh you need to go ahead and show your whole ass, you know, (laughs) because what is your goal? Your goal is not to look like the smartest person in the room or not look like you're wrong. Okay. Your goal is to what? Improve the party. All right. Make sure we're doing the right thing. Speak your mind because maybe, yeah, maybe you're not correct. The worst thing that's going to happen is you weren't correct and you learn from that. You know, yeah. other people convince you, dude, are you serious? That's not going to work because X, Y, Z. Did you not think of that? Here's, you know, like, and oh, kind of explain thanks it. Thanks for telling me. Yeah. And you're, you, 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 you grow from that versus keeping quiet, watching your party make a mistake, knowing you could have fixed it. I think it's good shit. And it also kind of reminds me of therapy talk in some ways, you know, hmm. like trying to cultivate, you know, a, a communicative relationship of like, hey, like you need to talk about shit when it bothers you or you're going to bottle it up and it's going to be a fucking problem. Yeah, that makes sense. But there is also that underlying trust of like, hey, we're not like breaking up over this, but I need to talk about a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's tough conversations. All right, next we get into uh, kind of the purpose. Mal says education in democracy must be carried on within the party so that members can understand the meaning of democratic life, the meaning of the relationship between democracy and centralism, and the way in which democratic centralism should be put into practice. Only in this way can we really extend democracy within the party 
and at the same time avoid ultra-democracy <laughs> and the laissez-faire that destroys discipline. Both in the army and in the local organizations, inter-party democracy is meant to strengthen discipline and increase combat effectiveness, not to weaken them. So what is this ultra-democracy? He mentions it a couple of times in this. Right, yeah. So basically, this is this idea that democratic centralism can be done poorly, and one of the possible results of that is ultra-democracy. It's like we vote on everything all the time. <laughs> like we can't make a decision. Yeah, it's sort of like the name implies. It's a lot of democracy. It's too much. It's if you take democratic centralism and you say, well, we don't, we don't need that. We don't need that centralism part. And you're, ju- you're just left <laughs> with the Dem mean. half. Yeah. And so your, your, your ultra Dem situation is where the party takes a vote. Your ultra Dem is going to insist, no, 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 no. We don't need to vote. We need to debate longer. Let's keep debating. Even with they're the only one. Right. If it's clear, if it's like, you know, 50-50, you probably do need to debate more. But if it's overwhelming. And there's just one guy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, When the party decides, okay, we're going to take action, the ultra dem is going to sit out on principle and say, no, not me. I don't, I didn't agree with this. Not my king. When they deliberate and and the party takes a public stance on an issue, the ultra dem will be out there in public shouting about their dissenting views. Saying, I know the party did this, but I don't believe it. You know, that's, that's, they, they, so going into it, see, this is the problem. It's not like everyone went into this and said, well, if it doesn't work, I'm going to do my thing. Everyone went into this that you're supposed to with the understanding that you have a commitment to the majority's decision. If you don't have that, what are you doing? Why are you there? You know, you're, you're, you're there. You're a kid who wants to, you know, goes into an argument with someone I want to play this game. I want to have this food. <laughs> and you're not going to quit until you get your way. That's that's a yeah. juvenile way to deal with it. And so that's your ultra democracy is. Well, Mal describes it in this later, well, in this upcoming quote, uh, as petty bourgeois. The, the petty bourgeois individualistic aversion to discipline, which like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, again, like reading this from, I mean, honestly, kind of petty bourgeois kind of lifestyle. Yeah, it can sound kind of scary to be like, okay, I'm going to like surrender, you know, submit to the majority, even if I disagree. Like, that's kind of scary, I think, for a very individualistic nation to be okay with. He kind of describes in that quote that, you know, you got to destroy the roots of ultra democracy first. The danger of ultra democracy lies in the fact that it damages or even completely wrecks the party organization and weakens or even completely undermines the party's fighting capacity, rendering it incapable of fulfilling its fighting task and thereby causing the defeat of the revolution. Not good. Damn, high stakes. Yeah. Next, it should be pointed out the source of ultra democracy consists in the petty, like you said, the petty bourgeois individual conversion to discipline. When this characteristic is brought into the party, it develops into ultra democratic ideas politically and organizationally, which are incompatible with the fighting tasks of the proletariat. So, it's not only just bad and, and kind of, you know, grinds things to a halt. It like puts the whole project. It's incompatible with our task of freeing the people from mm-hmm. the chains of capitalism. Yeah. Like we have such big and persistent enemies. 
that we can't really afford to spend all of our time in fighting. Yeah, who would love to see us at every turn racked by indecision, split mm-hmm. off into any number of different factions that refuse to work with each other, right? Because we have seen instances where splitting into different factions still didn't ruin everything because you just came together eventually, <laughs> you know, it was, mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. fine. But where we get these like really acrimonious splits, that's where it doesn't work so well. Yeah. Party ruining splits. Yeah. But I was wondering though, do we a hundred percent agree here with this question of democratic centralism and where the balance is there of you need ultimate democracy, but not ultra, but you need complete freedom of discussion at that time, that phase. And then you need complete unity of action afterward. Or is there some sort of spectrum in the centralism department and the democracy department? Like, is there some way to negotiate a different position for different organizations? Like, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think my question with this, it reminds me of a listener email we got like probably a year ago or so, but someone was asking about kind of the, the idea of, of democracy and kind of the fears that can come with it if you're part of like a marginalized community where you are necessarily in the minority, you know, yeah, like that, that can be kind of scary to then go into this and say, okay, I'm going to submit to the majority, you know, even if the majority is like, yeah, we don't need to worry about trans healthcare right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like then, like then I'm the loud person saying, Hey, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. You know? So, and, and because I don't know that just, that, that would be my question. I think in this is like, I think there does have to be a spectrum. There does have to be a way to allow for dissenting voices like, honestly, I am kind of okay if people talk shit afterwards, too, because if enough people are doing that, that means you did a bad job at, at the democracy part. Sure. I do think that if you have a majority of people clamoring or even, a you know, if it's 50-50, that's kind of rough. But if you have, like, you know, a large amount, you know, 30%, whatever, but, like, they just happen to not be as many of them, you know? Because of like who they are and their circumstances, like that's kind of fucked up. Well, and the other thing we got to consider is the fact that we're coming at this assuming that the democratic centralist organization we're talking about are the like the good party, like the -hmm. the right revolutionary one. Sometimes they're not. So sometimes they're going to have a bad line. They're going to be, you know, opportunists in some way or another. They're going to be you know, behind the people and saying, oh, we need to be more conservative than really where the people are at uh, or what have you. Like, they're going to make errors and, and some of those parties can be rectified uh, but and some of them can't. Like, they're not all going to be perfect orgs that just do this right. I mean, like, it's possible to split from them and, and have done a good thing because you'll you'll find a better organization. Like, don't I don't know. You don't you shouldn't be, feel like you have to be in this one particular organization of its shit. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be my thing is that I would hope that I don't know, like when we talked earlier about like ignoring the, you know, malicious actors. I think that needs to be really clear up top of like they they it's like we say all the time of like 
okay, we're all on the same page. You know, like we can all agree who the bad guys are. We can all agree we are not going to put up with, you know, racism and homophobia and transphobia and all that stuff. Like that needs to be like on the wall (laughs) in, in the fucking meeting hall so that you can always point to be like to that and be like, Hey, what the fuck was that? We don't do that here. You know? And like that would make me feel safer in these kinds of conversations of knowing that like, that's not up for debate. Yeah. Um, because when you get into situations of minority versus majority, like, you know, we, we call people minorities <laughs> and they're not treated well. So like that can be scary to then say to people, okay, minority, <laughs> you got to submit to the majority. Like that sucks. So like, we have to like, I think be really, uh, aware of that in, in how we position this and say like, Hey, we're going to make decisions as a unit, but like we're, we're going to trust you to tell us when we fuck up and we're, you're going to trust us that we will listen to you. I think, yes, you have to have that baseline of, you know, we're anti-racist because we're anti-capitalist, right? We're, you know, we're, yes, that's, I think intersectionality has to play a role in this. Like I, I think, I mean, Mao is dealing with such a different situation, you know, but I, I think like to update this for, for a modern movement, I think that would have to be at the base. I think that's almost just like finding true communist organizations and not. I mean, if you if you find oh, one yeah. that's like, no, we're we're kind of we're the racist communists. Yeah, we're like, appealing no, to traditional okay. values or something to you know mm-hmm. win over the American working class where they're at. Okay, these are they're called tailists. They're not correct. They're bad. Don't join them. Uh, it doesn't matter if you join them and start doing Democrats. It's it, they suck. All right. Their, their premises, yeah. when you build something on a foundation of sand, it's going to be destroyed. Uh, they don't have actual Marxism, actual communism at, at their heart. If they're against, um, the people that capitalism is against, like, no, totally <laughs> incorrect. So, uh, I mean, you do have to have that at the center, I think, but then I would say, I kind of lean more towards Mao of that beyond that, you know, the non-negotiable questions beyond, are you actually doing communism or not? The nuances of what's the correct tactic to take now, I think probably a hundred percent should be debated fully, but then still majority rules. Yeah. I guess my question would be in things like prioritizing tasks. So I can't think of a concrete example of this, but in some way, like, let's say the majority wants something and a minority population isn't being served by this. And they're like, hey, we would like to be prioritized in this, but because there's not enough because they are a minority, then they would be shut out of that. I don't I don't know what that would be in the communist context, you know, like everyone's going to have like healthcare and, you know, food and stuff like that. So I don't know exactly what that would be, but you're talking about nation state wise or party in a revolutionary phase wise, uh, nation state wise at this point. Okay. Or even, you know, commune, whatever it is you're running. Let's say, let's say it's a religious population, you know, and and they're in the minority in this group and they're like, Hey, we want resources to build 
you know, a temple or whatever it is. We, we want, we want to use this room for, for services. Yeah. And the majority is like, Hey, we can't prioritize that right now. We got a billion other things going on, which makes sense in some ways. They're like, we're fucking fighting a war, whatever it is they're doing. You know, their, yeah. their, their thing is we don't have the resources. And then the smaller group is like, but I want the resources. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I guess that makes sense. I don't know what they do. <laughs> so that's my question. Well, it sounds like they would lose. I mean, it sounds like they would lose. They'd have to convince more people to devote more of popular resources that they could do. You could also, you could, I mean, if you hear that often enough, right, you probably likely to blow it off the first meeting or something, but it depends on the size. And, and ideally you have people in your central committee, your leadership or whatever that are smart enough and, you know, have the pulse of the people enough to understand that there are sizable minorities and even if they aren't that sizable that you do need to proportionally devote resources to smaller groups like that so what i'm thinking is we don't need to like do the expenditure that we would say use to build you know a metro station that literally everyone <laughs> in the population is going to use versus like a small groups, uh, religious minorities, like temple, say. I'm almost thinking of like Vietnam's, what are they called? Like they're not interest groups, but that's how I think of them in my head. The groups, the mass organizations in the, like the fatherland front. Yeah. Yeah. Of like, you know, there's a women's group. There's, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's all kinds of different groups that can come with specific issues for them. Like, I think that's also pretty important in this because otherwise you could get in a situation, especially if you think back to the idea of like, we're coming from a capitalist imperialist culture, like boots fucking wet, you know, men are probably more likely to be empowered to speak up that there's, there's going to be power structures that we haven't dismantled yet. So I think it's going to be really important to like every now and then make sure like, Hey, are we checking in with all the groups? Like, are we serving them the way we should be? Yeah, that's a very good point. I think uh, representation in within the party, actually existing socialist states have definitely taken steps to make sure that was like not rectified, but improved. I think that's a big part of it in terms of leadership. Again, having, you know, because we talk about the mass line a lot. It's probably easier said than done of like, well, just listen to the people like that's harder to do when they're juggling all that shit, but like having people from those groups there in, you know, talking about what they're going to do is a big part of it. And like the education aspect is very important. Like, I don't know, just like as, as a trans person, I encounter so many people who just like, don't fucking know stuff about it. They come with a lot of misinformation about it. So like you have to have that info readily available and like it has to be normalized in such a way that like when these issues do come up people aren't being like arguing about things that are from a point of misinformation yeah that's true yeah i think i don't know for that specific circumstance which you can't we'll figure out in the course of it probably better than we can here sitting here talking about it oh i'm sure but <laughs> yeah we'll have to figure out a way for communists who have been talking about how intersectionality is key, how different oppressed groups are all oppressed by the same asshole capitalism. You know, people who have been talking this talk end up walking the walk of saying, okay, we're actually going to devote resources to this. This is correct to do. 
Uh, this is the proportion of people of our society that, you know, are in this particular group. So they're going to get that proportion of resources because they deserve it. It's they need them. all for yeah. all, you know, the earth is all of ours. So this, you know, that's carved out. You could even, uh, do some sort of like semi-autonomous stuff of like having different councils of people who can decide for those groups, like how they're going to allocate those resources, that sort of a thing. Totally. Totally. Okay. I just have to be the, the fly in the ointment here, <laughs> <laughs> the trans fly in the ointment. <laughs> uh, I didn't know flies could do that, but there you go. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I Yeah. We, like you said, we have these weird situations that we can think of. And we were mentioning earlier the hang up of maybe bourgeois Westerners with obedience and, you mm-hmm. know, subservient or what is it subordinate like, ooh, i don't know yeah you know maybe that's a little much for the western communists of us but we also haven't successfully kicked anything off so <laughs> yeah yeah maybe we need that <laughs> maybe okay what's next uh next i wanted to just stick with mal here for a talk that he gave in 1962 The full title is Talk at an Enlarged Working Conference Convened by the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China. Not the sexiest name. (laughs) No, for sure. It's long. Uh, The only part we're going to focus on is the part two of his talk, which is titled The Problem of Democratic Centralism. Because it seems like what we're talking about, you know? It does. Yeah, I think this will address a lot of my questions. Yeah. All right. So he starts talking about, you know, hey, some people here still don't understand what the fuck we're talking about with Democratic <laughs> Central. And they go around talking like, oh, yeah, I'm a communist. Yeah, I've been here since the beginning. But they still don't really get it. <laughs> you know, what's really happening here? He's, he says, you know, basically, I see some of these guys afraid. Yeah, scared of people talking shit. Yeah, what sense does it make for Marxist Leninists to be afraid of the masses? Zero. We already did that. That's the capitalists are the ones that are afraid of us. If the masses don't like you what are you doing yeah when they have made mistakes they don't like to talk about themselves and they are afraid of the masses talking about them the more (laughs) frightened they are the more haunted they become i think one should not be afraid what is there to be afraid of our attitude is to hold fast to the truth and be ready at any time to correct our mistakes both inside and outside the party there must be a full democratic life which means conscientiously putting democratic centralism into effect. We must conscientiously bring questions out into the open and let the masses speak out. Even at the risk of being cursed, we should still let them speak out. The result of their curses at the worst will be that we are thrown out and cannot go on doing this kind of work, demoted (laughs) or transferred. What's so impossible about that? Why should a person only go up and never down? Why should one only work in one place and never be transferred to another? I think that the motion and transfer, whether it is justified or not, does good to people. They thereby strengthen their revolutionary will, are able to investigate and study a variety of new conditions and increase their useful knowledge. I myself have had experience in this respect and gained a great deal of benefit. Yeah, I think that's really cool. Like the idea of like, hey, man, it's okay to fuck up. It's okay to be wrong. If you fuck up. We will take you out of that position. But like, I don't know. I I think it's interesting because like in capitalism, that's such a that's a terror. You know, Mm -hmm. if you get fired, like, oh, fuck, my life is in danger now. Like, I'm going to have to figure out a way to pay rent, et cetera, et cetera. 
But in this, that's not a factor. It's like, hey, maybe that wasn't a good fit for you. Let's try you over here. Maybe you'll like it more. Or if anything, you'll learn from your mistake and try again. Like, it takes so much of the, the fear out of being wrong, which I think then, again, encourages people speaking up. For sure. Now, are there limits? Yeah. You can't fuck up in the way of like, hey, maybe I I'm killed gonna, everybody. Yeah. I'm going to back <laughs> a Western coup or something like that. Or, oh, my buddies over here at the CIA thought I should be in. Okay. That no, goes no, no. a little we'll bit beyond fucking up. And yeah, you may face dire consequences in that, in that situation. Uh, but when we, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, but getting purged or something like that, most of the time, just means you don't have your old job. You know, you're like not in the position you were in before. You're out of favor. Yeah, yeah. You just got relocated, which again, sounds very ominous. <laughs> you hear about him, you got to relocate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, okay, sometimes it does mean you get purged. Like uh, <laughs> in the Great Purges, a lot of people got purged. It was mostly like people within the party, in party leadership and stuff like that. And it was like we've covered before, kind of an an overabundance of paranoia. You know, it was it was it was too much, too far. They probably got some people that were doing some bad shit, but they probably got way more people than that. Yeah, that can happen. It has it hasn't happened nearly as frequently as the Western press tries to make out. But most of the time, you're talking about what Mao's talking about here, which is just demotion or transfer, which is. Where you basically, you showed your, you showed your whole ass in your job, <laughs> you were bad at it, and they're like, okay, my man, no, like, we're going to send <laughs> you, you somewhere up. else, get it together, you know, get back on or off the wagon, whatever works for you, fix it, you know? <laughs> yeah, but I, I like the idea, too, of, of the transfer part. It's like, it might just be like, hey, you weren't like a good fit for this. This might not be your jam. Right, yeah. You need to be in the country, or you need to be in the city, or you need to be <laughs> somewhere not here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Try it again. Yeah. And that's totally something that did happen. I mean, Mao's like more long-term successor. There's a little bit of turmoil after him, but his more long-term successor, Deng Xiaoping, was had this happened to him where he was like, you know, demoted, uh, moved out to various provinces. He was just fucking put out to pasture multiple <laughs> times, like, and then rehabilitate, like, you know, oh, wow, never mind, you know, the economy's kind of weird. We want you to come, your economy guy, come figure it out, you know, and then they'd be like, actually, you're an asshole, get out of here. What the like, fuck? This happened to him like three times before he finally ends up back in favor again and, and ends up, you know, becoming the main guy in, in the central committee. But yeah, that that's that's totally uh, possible, I think, within the Communist Party, and I mean, it makes sense. You know, it it seems like a kind of pragmatic way to go about this. Yeah, what's interesting, and I don't know how much of this is just like you know anti-communist propaganda brainworms, mm -hmm. but I think this is in real contrast with how people see kind of like the bureaucracy of communism or, or what you would call like, you know, the totalitarianism of yeah. communism of like, I think someone in of that ilk would, would read this and say, well, you know, the guys up top are never admitting they're wrong and stepping down, you know? Right. Whereas they, whereas they are. Uh, so even if you look at the Soviet Union and, you know, Western capitalists or bourgeois historians rather will usually say, when they're met with 
reports that Stalin tried to resign three different times when he was an officer. Like, okay, well, that was a like a Julius Caesar Augustus sort of that was a play. Move. Like, no, no, yeah. no, I resign. You know, but like one of them is like someone very close to him committed suicide, and mm-hmm. he was distraught. Right. One of them I want to say was shortly after the uh, invasion of of the Nazis. And he's like, mm. I didn't fucking see that coming. Like, I wasn't ready for it. I mean, like, I, <laughs> I knew it up. was coming, but I wasn't ready at the time sort of thing. He's like, people were not like, no, fucker, we're in war now. You have to do this shit. <laughs> Please stay here. And it depends on, I guess, who you listen to. But like, you know, top leadership does sometimes try to, you know, try to step down or does step down. It totally happens, especially if you zoom out and look at like the Politburo or the Central Committee. Because I was surprised that Mao said he did. Yeah. No, I mean, Mao had, I wouldn't say, uh, was demoted. I don't think any, well, he was kicked. I think he was kicked out of the party early on. Because oh, I think so. Remember they said he was like doing adventurism and shit for like starting his like little Soviet commune uh-huh, and stuff like uh-huh. that. And he was like, okay, that's fine. He kicked me out. I'm still doing this. <laughs> that's so funny. And it worked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think it's such such a contrast with what kind of the West perceives as this, like, hero worship kind of thing of, like, oh, there's a picture of Mao in everybody's house kind of idea. Whereas, like, this is, seems like a pretty humble guy of just, like, hey, I fucked up before. Like, we all fucked up. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a part later on here, we probably won't quote it directly, but he says something to the effect of, I came out and told one of y'all's meetings, like, how I messed up and I, you know, I was trying to correct my mistakes and y'all didn't send it out to the people. Yes. And I was pissed. Like, what the fuck? Like, you're not supposed to hide this shit. Like, how are they supposed to know that they're supposed to be doing this? Like then their party leaders are supposed to do that. I love that. Like he's, he's totally trying to lead by example and, and like, yeah, like if people don't know that even I fuck up and that it's okay to call me on my shit, how are they going to feel okay about doing that at home? Yeah. Exactly. I love that. Again, such a contrast with the way he's portrayed. Right. And that's, I mean, because he was a good, like, leader, politician, however you want to put it, like, he's talking to, you know, people who are in his government right now, who are in his party. I mean, he's not going to come out there and say, like, oh, I'm the the best person in the world. Like, no, that (laughs) doesn't make sense. Like, that is a a complete, you know, uh, capitalist bourgeois fiction. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing to think about is that while I think with any leader in a social state, you have widespread uh, public admiration that's somewhat encouraged by the government. I mean, you, you want them to like like yeah. the guy, right? <laughs> uh, it's cool. Th- generally, that is that sort of mythical monolithic support of the leader is even less true the higher up you go in party leadership. You have more different kind of factions, not really formal necessarily, but different, you know, divisions. I mean, mm-hmm. these guys meet all the time. Yeah, there's cliques. Yeah, and, they, and they're talking <laughs> about the issues and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall in different ways. And you're going to kind of feel people out and say, okay, they're a little bit more of a conservative communist. They're a little bit more of a radical communist. You know, like everyone's going to have their little, you know, political kind of areas and those factions I think are more clear cut and people are more able to kind of, I don't know, they're the displeasure, I guess, or the, Oh, you know, kind of grumblings about leadership are 
more so than they would ordinarily appear. I think, unfortunately, mm-hmm. the masses are not always as mobilized as people think in socialist states either. So a lot, there's still a lot of what we suffer from in huge numbers in the West of, there's a lot of apathetic people. You know, yeah. they're like, I don't, yeah. I don't care about that shit, you know? Totally. So they have that too because, they're, what, they're humans. They're regular people. Yeah. They got other shit going on. Yeah. That was a, a really cool quote from this talk, I think. He also kind of goes on to go beyond just the people who are afraid of hearing criticism and says, now there are some comrades who are afraid of the masses initiating discussion and putting forward ideas which differ from those of the leaders and leading organizations. As soon as problems are discussed, they suppress the activism of the masses and do not allow others to speak out. This attitude is extremely evil. (laughs) Democratic centralism is written into our party constitution, but they don't apply it. Comrades, we are revolutionaries. If we have really committed mistakes of the kind which are harmful to the people's cause, then we should seek the opinion of the masses and of the comrades and carry out a self-examination. This sort of self-examination should sometimes be repeated several times over. If once is not enough and people are not satisfied, then it should be done a second time. If they're still not satisfied, it should be done a third time until nobody has any more criticisms. It does not matter whether you do it early or late, Provided you look squarely at your mistakes and are willing to admit them and correct them, and you're willing to let the masses criticize you, provided only that you adopt this kind of attitude, you will be welcomed. Yeah, I think this is fantastic. I I think it's like, hey, it's okay if you didn't do it right away. Just fucking do it now. Get on board. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, I think this is great. He was preaching to the uh, to the evangelical Christians in the South or something here. He was saying, like, all you have to do admit you're a sinner. Before the be salvation of the masses. Yeah. <laughs> well, even even earlier, there, there's a paragraph earlier where he's talking about like, hey, if, if as soon as we discover that things have been mishandled, people can be cleared and rehabilitated. Apologies can be made to them so that their minds can be set at rest and they can lift up their heads again. It's this idea, like, again, like we talk about the purge of being this like fucking, oh, my, everyone died. There's mm-hmm. just blood everywhere. And it's like, hey, like sometimes people fuck up. And you have to talk to them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like, and and it's it's said in this very, uh, very compassionate way of if you fuck up, like apologize and and learn from your mistake. Like that seems pretty normal, right? And pretty good. Kind of like you were saying with therapy talk of like be an yeah. adult, <laughs> be an adult, take care of your shit. <laughs> yeah, I like the link of like self criticism is kind of a, an extension of this democratic idea. Yes of like the self-criticism is not just for its sake, but it's kind of in response to criticism from the masses. Like it's, if people are saying that much shit about you, maybe you should take a look at yourself. <laughs> yeah. Like sometimes you're just going to do it. You're just going to reflect and be like, did I do good or not? But sometimes even if you do that, you're not going to be able to see it. You're looking from your own perspective. It takes a while, you know, for you to realize, man, I, you know, everybody I'm encountering is an asshole. Well, actually turns out it's maybe me. It's me. <laughs> All my exes were crazy. Explain that. (laughs) (laughs) What are the odds? So, yeah. And, you know, this is important. I think it's easier said than done, but to openly admit your mistakes, to correct them, to say, okay, we're going to do this. It takes a little bit of the destruction of one's pride. It does. I think it really does. And I think, again, I was struck by kind of the, the humility required and almost inherent in this speech. Yeah, for sure. 
I, I thought it was interesting. He says criticism and self-criticism is a method of resolving contradictions among the people. And it is the only method. There is no other, which I think is kind of fair. Like it, it, it's the idea of like, okay, like how, how did we feel about that? Did we do a good job? No. Okay. Why not? Like that yeah. seems pretty straightforward. If you don't do that, you just have resentment, right? You just yeah. have that fucker didn't do the right thing. You know, Oh, I would have done this. I would have been better. And it just leads to to division. It just leads to different camps forming, different rivals and all that shit. Yeah. And, and going on to say, like, if we don't explain the situation to the masses and to the cadres, if we do not offer our hearts to them and let them voice their own opinions, they will still be afraid of you and not dare to speak out. So I, I think I really liked the speech because it was focused more on the democracy part and on, on the listening part. And that's my shit. Yeah, I liked how he put the, he, like you said, emphasize the democracy part and then kind of goes back and ties it into the centralism part as yeah. intertwined, basically as impossible to exist without each other. Yeah, we cannot overcome difficulties without democracy. Of course, it is even more impossible to do so without centralism. But if there's no democracy, there won't be any centralism. I love that. Like you, it is such a great way to put that. Mm-hmm. Of, of these are, oh God, sorry, I've just, I did a lot of work shit today. So these are dependencies, if you are in, mm. the, in the tech world, that they are required for each other to exist. Exactly. Yeah. Because... He explains it really well here as uh, this analogy of the factory. You know, everyone knows that if a factory has no raw material, it cannot do any processing. If the raw material is not adequate to quantity and quality, it can't produce finished goods. Without democracy, you have no understanding of what's happening down below. So basically, you have no raw materials coming in. Like, democracy is how you know what's happening on the ground. It's like the party's sensory organisms how you know anything at all to establish a correct line based on the facts. He says, basically, democracy is like required to be able to get enough information to come up with like a good plan. So you know what decisions to make. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, what are you doing? Like, how can you be correct if you don't know anything about the world? So without democracy, your centralism, he ends up concluding, if we fail to promote democracy in full measure, then... Will this centralism and this unification be true or false? Will it be real or empty? Will it be correct or incorrect? Of course, it must be false, empty, and incorrect. Because what are we basing it on? It's, again, that foundation <laughs> on sand, nothing. It's wrong from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. It's just like fluff theory, just completely not taking into account, like, your material conditions. Yeah. And if you don't, uh, and, and it's not just getting stuff from the masses, but getting stuff from the party members who represent the masses too, of like everybody's coming with these different views and stuff. They have something to contribute, a unique lens. You know, if you want to go into kind of the freshman philosophy sort of side of things, it's like everybody's kind of the, you know, a particular universe with its own perspective, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you, and you can get that. And it's like so much more, your party is so much more well-informed if people are willing to speak out because you've guaranteed that democratic atmosphere in your party. I really enjoyed the next paragraph too, talking about that kind of the notion of leadership uh, as a collective leadership. So yeah. basically saying like the first secretary is just, he's not just in charge. He doesn't just make decisions arbitrarily. 
the relationship between the first secretary and the other secretaries and committee members is one of the minority obeying the majority. Like he's there to serve them. And mm-hmm. I, I love this because that helps me kind of square that initial list that I was a little bit uncomfy with about submitting because it's kind of a reciprocal relationship of submission. So like, if you look at that list, you're like, man, I'm really submitting to the party a lot. The party is also submitting to you. Like it goes the other way too. Yeah. So the majority is then in all cases empowered, right? If it's just like small, you know, the small group of leadership that wants something, but everybody else is like, no, fuck that. Well, that's a majority decision. <laughs> I want would be like, a first secretary day. And <laughs> right. Everyone's like, that's fucking stupid. We don't have money or time for that. Fuck off. And there's okay. totally, there's totally instances, you know, in the Soviet Politburo and, and in the Chinese Politburo where, you know, the chairman wanted something, the rest of Politburo, or, you know, it's split, you know, and it's like, well, okay, we're doing that, you know, uh, it's majority. I mean, like it, it's, it depends on where the numbers lie, basically, even with that powerful position. I feel like this is, this theory stuff as a whole is getting to like true public service in a way that just is non-existent in this country, obviously. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But like, this is actually what it is. Like, what if we had a government that actually listened to people? And what if we had people who actually felt free to speak their mind and know that they're going to be listened to? Like, what the fuck? That's insane. Yeah. And the government <laughs> kind of even evolves from because he's at the stage where he, Mao is at the stage where he's complaining about his people being afraid. Yeah. He's like, don't hide my trash. Like, let people see it. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's interesting because like in the United States now there's no, no one is like concerned in government. Oh, my government. Are we not being open enough? Like, (laughs) no, these guys operate with impunity. They don't care. They don't give a damn. They're not afraid of any one of us at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the closest they get to that ever is like, if there's mass protests or if there's strikes, sometimes they get a little bit afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's kind of it or even like within the system i don't know again uaps <laughs> insert x-files theme here <laughs> like the fact that this whistleblower guy he like he talks about all the retaliation that like he went through and how difficult it, it was for him to bring this to court you know mm-hmm. and how it continues to be very difficult and he like talks about like there's times where like i have been afraid for my life and like so having a system that that is so closed off and and completely unavailable to either you know lower members of its of its system or also the people obviously um yeah ain't good no yeah they, they don't have to worry about that stage where they're afraid of people and then i like how mal goes from that and says hey actually you know be not afraid mm-hmm. listen like these guys are not here to punish you. They're here to correct you because you're you're fucking up their shit. Like, fix it. They don't care if you're in charge if you do good things for them. Like, that's that's what they want you to do. <laughs> so, it's it's very much again to that like, you know, kind of Christian message of don't hate the sinner. Like, just convert them. Like, fix them. Bring heal them. The idea of trying to figure out okay, if my people aren't speaking up, what do I do? Is it a me problem? Is it a them problem? And like, even he suggests like, maybe you should leave while they discuss things. Yeah, I love that. He calls out the, uh, 
the secretaries, you know, the provincial secretaries who come in to their little, you know, local uh, leadership meeting and everybody who's chattering and chattering and chattering, the, the hush falls it's, over it's the It's all room. quiet. Yeah, because, oh, the secretary came in. <laughs> Big boss is here. Yeah, and they're like, and he's like, what, why, why the hell are you there? <laughs> it sounds like you're getting in the way of discussion. <laughs> and he, he's kind of like, that's on you. Like, you need to fix that. And, hey, I'm the chairman, so it's also on me. I love that, too. But he's like, this, this is also my fault. Yeah. And like you said, coming from our upper, I mean, like, you know, we're slightly corrupted. We're less surprised at this, <laughs> but still. Yeah. It's, it's surprising to see this incredible amount of humility and everything. Uh, I don't know. It just quite, it definitely puts a little spear in the side of the old oh, chairman Mao. He made everybody, you know, bow to him and stuff. Totally. Also, he can make a joke. I loved this. This <laughs> He references a play called The Tyrant Bids His Lady Farewell. And he's talking about these kind of uh, tyrant-like people in the party. He says, if these comrades don't reform, the day will surely come when they too will be saying farewell to their ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and this is laughter in parentheses, like the room cracked up at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. It just it's, humanizes him so nicely. No, he's great. He's like, it's, why do I say this so bluntly? It's because I intend to be mean and make some comrades feel sore so that they think things over properly. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It wouldn't be a bad thing if they couldn't sleep for a night or two. <laughs> That's, That's hilarious. So Putting on blast. Uh, oh, later totally. he says something about tigers' asses or something. He's saying that like people are scared to confront someone like touching a tiger's ass. Oh yeah, yeah. You think nobody will really dare touch the ass of tigers like you? They damn well will. Dude, <laughs> I'm gonna kick that tiger's ass. ass. <laughs> uh, he also talks shit about Yugoslavia, Ooh. calling it a bourgeois country. Ooh, I saw that. Yeah. Well, there was that rift already. I mean, yeah, that was yeah. that predated the the Sino. Sino-Soviet split was the Tito-Stalin split. Yeah, you know, and then basically oh, by that point, they had been kind of dogging him as a, you know, a social democrat sort of mixed economy, as he puts <laughs> it here, bourgeois dictatorship. But uh, yeah, maybe that's a little harsh. Yeah, we're not really anti-Yugoslavia people. No, they're kind of no. cool. I liked the the slogan. Uh, our slogan is a people's democratic dictatorship led by the proletariat and based on the alliance of the workers and the peasants. I mean, that just sums up Maoism very nicely. Yeah, I, I dig it. Um, and he kind of ex- explains a little bit in this and the, the uh, succeeding paragraph about his kind of theory of revolution that kind of what sets uh, Mao Zedong thought apart um, in terms of Marxist-Leninism is kind of like that whole alliance with the peasants uh, mm-hmm. alliance with the patriotic capitalists and the, the, that sort of like weird class sort of structure that is like taking all comers. Yeah. We got to <laughs> We got to take out the imperialists first and then we can, we can build up our country sort of thing. But yeah. 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 But I like this too, because I think it does a good job explaining dictatorship of the proletariat in a way that like, sometimes I feel like Lenin would get really tripped up in. <laughs> Like, yeah, because Lenin was too busy and Marx was too busy, both of them in get, like uh, enjoying the joke of the shoes on mm-hmm. the other foot sort of thing of like, yeah, they're really into the wordplay aspect. Now we're the dictators. And it's like, 
most, most people at the time probably thought that was cool. But now it's like, it's kind of getting in the way of us, like, getting this off the ground. No, nobody <laughs> wants to be the dictator. Like, even if it's them and they're, like, friends, they still don't want to. Yeah. I mean, I, I like this explanation of it, of we are so gem- democratic that we are able to enforce you know the will of the people enforce enforce actions against the enemies of the people you know and 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 he talks about guarding against reactionary classes and um you know how they're always going to be kind of simmering there and like the idea of democracy as a as a an antidote to that yeah that that's yeah that's a good way to put it that's the protection he does kind of call out like secret security shit though oh yeah says they're do, doing too much professional work yeah, which I thought was a weird term for it, but he's just like, yeah, our security system, uh, it better be basically handled well because it is possible to get that in the hands of bad people. And if they're not relying on the masses in their work, then they're going to be doing too much purging, basically. Yeah, they're going to get, because uh, that also, that opens them up to so much, you know, counter espionage and stuff or being fed bad information. Not to say that can't happen from the masses, but you have more protections against it the more people are on your side yeah yeah and i i like this part too of to exercise dictatorship over the reactionary classes does not mean that we should totally eliminate all reactionary elements blam 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 (laughs) but rather that we should eliminate the classes to which they belong we should use appropriate methods to remold them and transform them into new men you know we don't have to kill all the capitalist guys new year new elon musk (laughs) Well, I, would, I don't know. New year, new Jeff Bezos. He's, he's going to need a lot of rehab, those two. We're going to run before and after PSAs. <laughs> Bring in your unrehabilitated capitalist today. We'll do our best, but <laughs> Jesus, we're going to need our top team on those two fuckers. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, that's another, you know, sure. We Have we all, you know, sat around with our friends at some point and talked indiscriminately about guillotines and the like. Yeah, we, I mean, you know, most of us have, okay? We've been there. But that's not really what we're talking about. And Chairman Mao, you know, the presider over, you know, 100 gajillion <laughs> dead capitalists when he killed every single last landlord is here to tell you, actually, that was not me. That was my fanfic. Actually, what we're trying to do is eliminate people as a class, meaning like the people stay, the class does not. There's a reason why the last Chinese emperor was just like fucking living in communist China. Totally. Like if someone comes up to you, they got, you know, fucking pitchforks and shit. And they're like, hey, rich person, we want all of your shit. And you're like, no. But they're like, hey, it's cool. You're going to still have like all the shit you need to live. You just have slightly less shit. If you're an asshole who says no, then then yeah, you're the problem. <laughs> and he's kind of saying, even then, we're gonna try to fix you. I mean, it's not. We're gonna, gonna yeah, I'll be like, okay, I know you're sad about losing all of your shit. Let's talk. <laughs> yeah, you're going in the sad box for a while. We're gonna take your stuff, <laughs> and then we're gonna like give you a place and just. Yeah. Do what do you thing. actually want to do with your life? Are you a sad rich boy? Do you need a hobby? <laughs> do you need to find purpose in your life? Except besides accumulating new things. Oof. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Lots of us need that. <laughs> Honestly, I have days where I'm like, I'm sad. I want to buy something. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> uh, so that's uh, the inimitable Chairman Mao. Always a good read. 
Dude, good shit. I'm telling you, this this almost got me to turn into a Maoist. So his style is also, I think, really good. It's like simple yeah. and just like far more understandable than a lot of what I read. Dude, yeah, I read this like 30 minutes before recording. <laughs> <laughs> it was really easy. Yeah, I tried to read some Lenin on this and he's just, he's so much more. Maybe the Russian translates worse. I don't know. Maybe, but yeah, I was really surprised at how well this translated and, or, you know, shout out to whoever did the translation for this because it's great. Yeah. So, all right, we got you one step further down the road to the immortal science of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. I did some self-crit. Maybe I'm a Maoist. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll look back and be like, oh, remember when I wasn't a Maoist? <laughs> maybe. Next up to kind of round out our conversation from the... Uh, the positive side of democratic centralism, we have Comrade Fidel Castro. This is from El Sol, the Socialist Party Weekly. Yeah, so this was an interview that they published in that newspaper. This was an interview with FRAP, uh, which is the Chilean Popular Action Front, which was ah. a political party-like coalition of like kind of left parties. It was okay. the precursor to the political coalition called popular unity uh, which was okay. the one that fielded successfully salvador allende's i was uh, wondering yeah <laughs> so these guys also fielded him but like unsuccessfully a couple times gotcha gotcha okay so they're over here to learn some shit yeah learning from the that's masters. cool love like, that y'all did a revolution how did how did that work like how'd you get rid of that imperialism thing that'd be so <laughs> sick <laughs> asking for a friend yeah <laughs> not me but you know <laughs> So they ask Fidel, in what form do you think democratic centralism will be applied to the United Revolution Party pers that is now being set up? Which is, is kind of like a weird naming convention, but it is like the precursor to the official Communist Party of Cuba. Okay, gotcha. And he says, democratic centralism is not the same as bureaucratic centralism. These two terms are often confused. Democratic centralism does not imply the abandonment of internal democracy. On the contrary, there should be collective internal discussion without losing respect for the discipline and directives from higher authorities. Centralism should be more and more democratic as revolution advances. This is what is happening in Cuba. We are establishing a political organization by the most democratic means. I mean, we've talked about Cuba's election process several times on the show, and that's kind of my fucking jam. Like, it is so democratic. It is so of the people. It is just really fucking cool. Does it ever almost <laughs> sound annoyingly democratic? Like, it almost sometimes like, to almost, me sounds like, like a lot of work. Yeah, I don't know if I would go to all those meetings. <laughs> yeah, I better have a four hour work day because I got to go to all these community meetings later. Whereas here, like, the, you know, most we can be bothered to do is watch, like, televised spectacles of debates and then show up and vote or, like, watch <laughs> news and get mad about people voting one way or the other. It's so detached. and It is, yeah. And even, yeah, local elections, I definitely ignore this <laughs> which i know i shouldn't but whatever yeah <laughs> it's a bitch so castro briefly mentions like internal discussion in the party here but that's kind of his last little bit mm -hmm. the main emphasis in his interview here is uh in terms of democratic centralism uh and the sense of like party membership and the relation of the party to the masses so focusing on Democratic in terms of the people's interaction with the party. Yeah, yeah. So he, t he talks about, like, the rejection of, like, a caste system. 
Yeah. The way he tackles it, he kind of he kind of explains, you know, here's what we're doing now. The principle of selection is maintained, but selection is made from among those elected by the masses as being exemplary workers. So basically to get party membership, he says, in this way, the decisive factor governing the entrance of a worker in the party is the good opinion and the support of the masses. If a comrade is not known by his companions at his present working place, you should give them a frank explanation of his merits so that they can elect him as an exemplary worker. We are sure that this method will help prevent the bureaucratization of the party and prevent it from becoming a caste that is completely separated from the masses. Everyone who wishes to join the party must realize that he must first count on the support of the masses. It's not the same to get mass support as to gain that of a civil servant. Yeah, I really like that. Like, just to even be in here, like, you can't be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, and no assholes allowed. It was almost kind of, to me, like, almost kind of a Trotskyist vibe a little bit of, like, the mm. anti-bureaucracy sort of angle. Yeah. Of like, yeah. And the language of the caste, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the bureaucratic And, caste. like, separate from the people kind of stuff. Yeah, it was yeah. the same vein of critique or, you know, put another way, it's almost Mao's mass line sort of don't get separated from the people don't kind of get fossilized into that caste elite. Basically you have to not be an asshole to just the general public. You can't just woo over a couple of, you know, people in the park. Hey buddy, you let me in, you know, mm-hmm. can't just grease some wheels there. Right. Yeah. And in that way we end up not being subject to that ourselves of letting our friends in. And that's, you know, that's the only way we get new people is just letting our buddies in. I love the example he gives, which is that <laughs> they, they sent, 20 sons of old communists to the USSR to learn to be helicopter pilots. And almost all of them got sent back because they were quote, uneducated or anti-Marxist or undisciplined. Should the son of a communist be one too? Like, God, I hope so. Uh, but me too. <laughs> I'll be a little embarrassed if they're not. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. And then, and then he says, well, we learned from that. And now, you know, the masses chose 500 young people, from, from humble origins to be trained. And, you know, they, they put them through a bunch of training first to like, see, you know, who would shake out and then sent 400 to, uh, to Soviet Russia and they came back and they're awesome. Yeah. I love that. That it's, this is kind of, um, it's some good self crit, but it's also coupled with the, like, what's your greatest weakness sort of turnaround part of it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But we're doing better, you know, uh, (laughs) But like, I learned from that. <laughs> yeah, like you said earlier, you know, as the revolution advances, we're you know we're doing better on the democracy half. I like that a lot because I, I could totally see. Yeah, early on, it's like, dude, we all have to be united. We're fucking fighting the jaws of capitalism closing around us and imperialism. Like, just fucking get in line and hold this gun. <laughs> no, yeah, you need a military discipline and a military level of secrecy and compartmentalization and all that to succeed. In a guerrilla war like that, you know, when you're this you small have time group, to talk and hash everything out. Yeah, you, you can't really have mass meetings. You can have the sympathy of the masses, but they're not really in on your plans because that's too many people to know, you know, in a military operation like that. But he's, he says, you know, earlier that that centralism that they start with, that unity gets made more and more democratic as the revolution advances, meaning basically that that gets coupled with that mass democratic participation in the party, you know, intertwined, just like Mao said, Hey, now we're, you know, you, you cannot have one without the other successfully. 
in terms of running the whole thing, right? Like you, maybe Castro and his guys, they had democracy within their small group. But once you and the masses are actually a political body, now you've got to expand that. Yeah, yeah, you got to be able to to be more open to what they think and and respond to that appropriately. Yeah, so that one I I thought added a little spice to it. Yeah, yeah, I liked that one a lot. Uh, I liked the, you know, the concrete example of it. And also, yeah, just great to hear from Cuba. Love those guys. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I enjoyed learning about this a lot. So if you sat there listening to that and you're like, damn, you didn't even take into account anarchists and you know people who aren't maoists and all this shit you don't you don't even know the the cons of this that's what we're going to be doing in two weeks of course we'll have our shooting the shit episode in between but our next educational episode will be about the the anti-democratic centralism take yeah so before we get all the way out there where are you right now i'm i already said kind of i'm in favor I think it's good. I do, I do think it has its potential pitfalls, which I think we'll get more into in a couple of weeks. Like I can see where it could go awry if misapplied. And I think, you know, our, the people we were quoting from said too, you know, that, yeah, this can be done badly. But um, I think if you're going to run an effective revolution organization, democratic centralism seems like a good way to do it. Yeah. Right now I give it a B. Okay. I'm interested I liked it a lot. My my only reason I have a B right now, it's a temporary B. I feel like I can't form an opinion. I got to hear from my girl, Emma. What does she think about this? Okay. You know, I got to, I got to hear from the anarchists. I've got a little soft spot for them. And, you know, I, I think I brought up my, my concern with like minority populations earlier. And so like, yeah, I want to know how that would be addressed. Okay. And I'm the callous Leninist who's like, yeah, it's good. It's fine. <laughs> a plus. Yeah. So we'll um, reconvene next week where we have completely different agenda items on <laughs> on the list. But then afterward, yeah, we'll, we'll get into the opposition. We will talk to y'all later then. All right. Uh, adios. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.